We continue in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 this week. It'll be 2 Corinthians 6 verses 1 through 10. Just want to remind you the reason for Paul writing this letter to the church in Corinth. If you remember, they're accusing him. He's responding to the accusations that have been made against him. Um, Remember, he was going to make a trip there and he's provided rationale why he didn't make that trip. Um, They've accused him of negligence, of being insincere, uh, just being a not very eloquent preacher or a bad preacher, false teaching even, when really the entire time they are the ones who have been uh, put upon by false teachers. So he's defending his ministry there, and we see some self-vindication in his writing. Again, this is the least systematic of Paul's letters. It's well recognized by um, people who study nothing but the Bible that if you look at Romans, it's a very systematic book. He walks through Scripture, walks through doctrine in a very systematic way. Second Corinthians is not that. Second Corinthians is just a letter. He sat down and wrote it under the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But you see a lot of Paul's emotion. He doesn't seem to um, stay in one particular theme. He kind of bounces around from theme to theme. And it's probably because of the nature of the response, his response to this church. What comes through more than anything, though, at least in these first five chapters, and we'll see it later as well, is Paul's intense love for the church in Corinth and his intense love for God. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Excuse me. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander we praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing but possessing everything. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask for your wisdom. We ask for your Holy Spirit to work on our hearts. We ask that we might understand this text that we've read. We ask that this would not just be another sermon preached and heard by the family of God, but that this would be Christ speaking to our hearts, that we would be changed Hear our prayers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So if you remember last week, Paul says that gospel ministers are called ambassadors. They're ambassadors in the sense that they're sent from God to minister to a people whom he has called. Earthly ambassadors, of course, even today, earthly ambassadors from any nation are accorded a great deal of honor and respect and authority. But Paul says that Christ's ambassadors, the ministers of the gospel, don't serve for earthly glory and honor. Indeed, they get usually the opposite. They serve for heavenly honor. They serve for the honor of their king. Jesus said that on, on earth, all Christians should expect to be treated the way Jesus was treated, especially his apostles, that they would be despised and rejected by men. So in this text, Paul is describing in the, min, in the midst of his own suffering, in the midst of his own rejection by the Corinthian church, he's describing his own conduct and affirming to them that his conduct was right. And this is the conduct expected of every minister of the gospel. Indeed, it's the conduct, it's the same conduct expected of every Christian. We talked in great detail in 1 Timothy about the requirements for elder and the requirements for deacon in the church. If you remember, they're just the, re- they're just the requirements that outline what it means to be a Christian. These, these are what Christians do. It's the same, um, the same thing here. We see Paul describing how he has ministered to the church in Corinth. He is exhorting all ministers in every place to act in the same way, but really it's for all Christians. So certainly this is applicable for all of us. He says in verse 4 that we commend ourselves in every way. We put no stumbling block in anyone's way, no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. He's describing a faithful ministry in the verses that follow. Um, We're going to look at three ways that we see that ministry. First, by endurance and trials. Secondly, by pure living. And thirdly, by humility in all circumstances. By endurance in trials, he says in, uh, I guess the end of verse 4, that we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. This is Paul saying, by great endurance in all these things, in afflictions and hardships and calamities and beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors and sleepless nights and hunger, he commends himself in every way. So he's talking to a church who is in, in large measure rejected him, and then many of them have actually come back to Paul, but not everyone. Um, And he's affirming his ministry to them, and he's saying, I'm commending myself to you in all of these ways. First of all, by patient endurance in all the ways that I've suffered. Patient endurance, by great endurance, he says. Um. It reminded me of when we think of endurance, we think of the opposite of running away. We think of the opposite of cowardice. Endurance is just showing up and staying in the midst of hardship. That's what Paul's saying. I didn't run in the midst of affliction or hardship or calamity. I didn't run. I stayed here. I stayed with you. I endured. Uh, I remembered uh, a scene from one of my favorite uh, movies, 
you know I don't talk about movies often, but when I do, it's, it's usually a good one. Um, this is uh, A Bridge Too Far, an old World War II movie. Uh, the theme is based, it's a real historical movie. It really happened, and they try to stay historically accurate through this particular flick. But uh, it's the largest airdrop in wartime history. I believe it still is. They dropped an entire, I think, army of soldiers, para-dropped them behind enemy lines in Holland. And they were going to take uh, the bridge over the Arnhem River. Um, Things did not go well for the Brits. Uh, They were unknowingly walking into the resting place of the whole Panzer Division. Uh, So the Panzer Division wasn't known to be there and actually went there to rest and recoup. uh, And that's where they ended up dropping. But they didn't give up. They tried to do their mission. And there's a particular point in, uh, in the movie where uh, the German general has been pounding away at the British forces on the opposite side of the River Arnhem on this bridge. And obviously they're not doing well. So a German soldier under a flag of truce carrying a white flag runs out into the middle of the bridge. All the firing stops. Uh, The British commander and his orderly stand up as well. And uh, the German officer says, My general says that um, he is willing to discuss terms of surrender. The suffering doesn't need to go on any longer. And the British response was, Tell your general that we do not have the facilities to accept his surrender. We don't have the facilities to, to take all the prisoners. So they were not going to give up. Eventually they had to. They almost all died. Um, But that endurance, that commitment to endure through all trials was something that is celebrated today. And the opposite, cowardice, of course, is never celebrated. So Paul's saying he had great endurance, implying great moral courage as well. In the midst of affliction and hardship and calamity, beatings, imprisonments, and riots. So notice he he breaks his trials up into kind of three general categories. First, it's just generally great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamities in general, and then specifically in beatings and imprisonments and riots. And then thirdly, it's voluntary, if you will, suffering of labors, hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Regardless, it was all for the church. So I think the first takeaway for all of us is that the man of God, the woman of God, the minister of God, is someone who doesn't quit. Remember when Gary Randalls was going through the book of Hebrews in Sunday school for so long? And over and over and over again, we heard, don't give up, don't give up. We don't have to be the best at everything, but we shouldn't quit. We shouldn't give up in our Christian faith. Uh, The average pastor, I read, stays in a church for four years. That's average. Of course, it it seems to to vary from region to region. But um, in my experience has been when a pastor moves to a new church, it's not that he's running to a, a, a better church. He's running to a a better opportunity, it's usually seeming that he's running from something. 
And I'm painting with a very broad brush. I know pastors change churches for many good reasons. But I can see the temptation to run being very powerful for someone who's not keeping their eyes on Christ. Paul's saying that great endurance is required for him as an apostle to minister to that church. It's the same for every pastor. It's the same for every Christian. You need to remember that as a king's man, as the king's woman, you must remain faithful. Don't run. When trials come, and they will, don't run. Of course, Jesus is our example in this. He's our primary example. In Luke chapter 9, so you know Luke is it's a long gospel. And in chapter 9 is when Jesus begins to walk toward Jerusalem. So from chapter 9 until the end of Luke, I think... Uh, Chapter 22, from those, from chapter 9 until the end anyway, Jesus is walking toward his death. And in chapter 9 it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to display great endurance and walking through that mission that God had given him. Of course, set his face, many people think that uh, this is a reflection of Isaiah chapter 50, to set his face as flint, um, as a servant of God. He showed great endurance. And in Hebrews chapter 12, right after the, the faith chapter in the scripture, Hebrews 11, he says, We're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance, or run with endurance the race that is marked out for us. That's to every one of us. We're called to run with endurance, to not give up. Why? Because we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Later he says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In other words, just as they treated Christ, they will treat you. Don't give up. Don't give up. Romans chapter 5. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance or perseverance. When we come to, so it's not just Jesus or the individual Christian, but the entire church is expected to be a church that endures. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we describe, or we see John, John in John's vision, uh, all the churches, the seven churches being uh, addressed by Jesus. Uh, the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. The church in Thyatira, he says, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and patient endurance. The church in Philadelphia, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. You see, Jesus expects the church of God in the midst of a hostile world to patiently endure. And this is a call for the endurance of the saints in Revelation 14. Those who keep the commandments in their faith in Jesus Christ. So like Paul, the minister of the gospel is to patiently endure in his work. And like every minister, you are to patiently endure in your life. Even in the midst of affliction. Uh, have you thought about the, the corollary to that? 
Paul seems to be saying, if you don't patiently endure in the midst of affliction, you'll be setting up a stumbling block for someone. Remember in verse 3, he says, we put no obstacle or stumbling block in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions and all the hardships he mentions. So to not patiently endure would be to set up a a roadblock, to, to set up an obstacle in someone's way. So it's important that we never, ever turn our backs on God. When Paul describes spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter 6, remember he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand on the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Having done all to stand firm. He doesn't say after, after that, having done all to charge the enemy's lines or to break down the enemy's walls. He says after having done all to stand firm. To stand. The opposite of standing firm of showing great endurance is running away. So cowardice is never affirmed in the scripture. Nowhere will you find a coward who's celebrated, even in the world. We don't celebrate cowards. We don't celebrate turncoats. Um, Some of you may know what a quisling is. A quisling, that's a person who turns on his own countrymen. When the Nazis were, I think, coming into the Netherlands, I think it was Quisling who turned over to the Nazis the keys of the government. We've got, in America, we've got our own turncoats, don't we? Benedict Arnold. Nobody wants to be that guy. Nobody wants to be related to that guy. Uh, cowards are never affirmed. And you say, well, is that even in the Scriptures? Actually, it is. Revelation 21 when Jesus is describing all those who will be cast into the lake of fire, this is at the very end of Scripture, verse 8. He says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So being a coward is something that you want to guard against. That means standing by the Holy Spirit on the Word of God. It's something that the Holy Spirit empowers everyone to do. Without the Holy Spirit, you cannot do it. But with the Holy Spirit, you will. So let's look specifically at the words he mentions. He mentions afflictions. He's just been, his heart is burdened with afflictions, and yet he's still going to endure. He mentions hardships. In other words, overwhelming circumstances in his life. Some of you are going through hardships in a real sense of the word. Overwhelming circumstances or calamities. Calamities are emergencies where maybe escape seems hopeless. You don't know a way out. Paul's been there. Christ has been there. They patiently endured. But specifically, we see he refers to beatings and imprisonment and to riots. If you turn forward to chapter 11... Paul goes into great details about all of the ways that he suffered for the church. We learn that uh, maybe it was 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I don't see it in 2. Regardless, we know that Paul has been beaten already by this time. It'll be more later, but he's already been beaten eight times 
I think three by the Jews and five by the Gentiles. He's been beaten eight times. Um, So beatings are something Paul is familiar with. Imprisonment, we know he's been imprisoned many times. Um, And riots. So you might wonder why Paul would write riots. We don't really understand riots. Rioting when it occurred with Paul, it was the whole town rioting against him. Against one guy. The whole town rioting against him. So he's saying, I've suffered, guys, and I endured. I stood. He was courageous in the midst of that. And then he mentions his voluntary suffering, if you will, his labors, his hard work, sleepless nights, and the hunger that results from such a lifestyle. This is all on behalf of the church. And Paul says, I endured. I did not quit. So he stayed the course and he finished the race. And after having done everything, he stood. He stood firm. This is our call as well. If you feel like you're suffering, if you feel like you're in the midst of some calamity or hardship right now, and you're like, I don't know that I can even continue. You don't have to conquer everything. You need to stand on the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit will enable you to stand, to get through until such a time as you can take weapons in the right hand and in the left, as he mentions later. Patiently endure the suffering that God allows to come to you. For the sake of the church, for the honor of his king, this is what Paul did, and this is what we are called to do as well. So he commends his ministry to them in the fact that he patiently endured in all of the suffering. But secondly, we also see he commends his ministry to them by his pure life. Verses 6 and 7, he says, by purity and knowledge and patience and kindness, the Holy Spirit and genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God with weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. So this is a, if you think of 1 John, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, It's like the first set of sufferings, he was tempted maybe by the lust of the eyes, the the desire for an easy way out. There's suffering here, there's affliction and hardship, and the temptation would be to lust after an easy thing, to to run after something easy. Um, Here, this is maybe a lust of the flesh. It's um, rather than living a pure and righteous life before God, um, just to pursue carnal pleasures, to pursue worldliness, to pursue things that give me immediate gratification. Um, And yet Paul has resisted all of those various temptations. And he says his, his ministry will not be discredited because he's tried to live a pure life. Richard Baxter, um, wrote a massive work called the reformed pastor, but in it, um, one short passage of about 300 pages, he talks about how uh, a pastor who doesn't actually live a godly life, even though his sermons might be well-researched and, and, and doctrinally sound and well-delivered, he undoes everything he does in the pulpit by living such a carnal life, a godless life. This is what Paul is saying he did not do. He lives his sermons day to day. The Word of God weighs upon him before he preaches to the church. 
He lives a pure life, a transparent life. The key to all of this is the Holy Spirit. He mentions the Holy Spirit in the middle of this list of, of, of wonderful gifts to the church. I think because the Holy Spirit is the center of success for all of his ministry. Like he said in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, his ministry is only successful because it's a gospel, spirit-filled ministry. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and his life is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So he lives a transparent life, a pure life, a singleness of purpose. In every situation, he's the same way. That's a challenge, actually, for every Christian. So ask yourself, when you go into a certain place or a particular store, your place of employment, or when you go to someone else's house, or maybe this friend, I act differently. Do you act the same way everywhere you are? Or, or do you have different masks that you put on? Oh, well, I'm going to work. Here's my work mask. Oh, I'm going to church. Here's my church mask. That's actually sinful. You need to live as unto the Lord the same way all the time, everywhere. There shouldn't be a, a church mask and a work mask, uh, a friend mask and a family mask. You need to be the same person in every circumstance whose eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ. Paul said he's that person. He's got a pure life. He's got a singleness of purpose in his life, and it's Jesus. He says he's also commended by knowledge. I don't believe he's talking just about knowing things, but he's talking about the gospel, the ministry of the gospel, and the mystery that is our redemption in Jesus Christ. It's a knowledge that is not just something you say. It's something that is known. The the 17th century Scottish theologian and pastor Henry Scougal said, true religion is a union of the soul with God. Isn't that good? True religion is a union of the soul with God. So it's not just information you know, but it's information that you know. You know it. And Paul says, I have this knowledge. He says he also affirms himself to them or commends himself to them with great patience. He's not easily put off or discouraged. Remember he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In other words, Paul says, I never got tired of telling you the truth. I never was frustrated that you were slow to learn. You remember Jesus had great patience with 12 of the, it seems like, the most dull men that he could have ever chosen to be his followers. They never really understood. He would tell them something plainly. I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And it says, and they didn't understand. How do you not understand? And yet Jesus was patient with them and instructed them patiently. You remember, even up until the, uh, the Last Supper, they're still arguing about who's going to be the greatest. This is an argument they've had a lot. Well, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest apostle. Over and over. And Jesus is just patiently instructing them. So much so that he goes up in the Last Supper and washes the feet of each apostle. He's still instructing them. He's still patiently showing them what this looks like 
to be a Christ follower. Jesus' patience is also seen in Mark chapter 9 when there's a demon-possessed boy and the father uh, is asking Jesus to heal him. And Jesus says, well, do you believe I can do this? And the man says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus healed him. He didn't say, no, no, wait until, your, wait until your doubts are gone and then I'll come back and help you. No, he healed him. And in this way, we can see his great patience with us as well. And this is our cry. It's not that we don't ever have doubts about anything. We may have doubts from time to time about things that we know about God. But our cry is, be patient with me. I believe. Please help my unbelief. This was Paul's ministry to the church in Corinth. He was also exceedingly kind. We see kindness is something he affirms or commends himself to them with. His, his kindness while he was there. His compassion toward others. And this is one of those things where there's really no excuses. You can't say, well, I'm just, you know, I'm, I, my mouth just gets away from me sometimes. Uh, I just speak my mind. I, I just can't help it. I just have a bad temper. Actually, that's not right. There's no such thing as an unkind Christian, just like there's no such thing as a, a proud Christian. Those are oxymorons. Because Christ was so kind to us, it produces great kindness in all those whom he saved. He calls us even to be kind to our enemies and those who abuse us. So Paul commends him, himself with his kindness. And finally, in the middle of it all, he says the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who enables all of these fruits of the Spirit. Um, he's describing many of the fruits of the Spirit here as listed in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, goodness, and self-control. He says in genuine love. Genuine love, this is referring to the love that we have for each other here in the church. This genuine love is how Paul says, I loved you, the church in Corinth, with a genuine love, a brotherly love. Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Talking to the disciples. This is how the church knows that we are brothers and sisters. We have love for each other, but also outside the church they see that and they know that it's special. That it's different. He commends himself to them in truthful speech. In other words, he's preaching the truth. As opposed to 2 Corinthians 4 earlier, where he says, I've renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul did not mince any words when he preached. He preached truth to the people in Corinth. Um, and finally, it was with the power of God. This is God's Word, the preached Word, is powerful because of the Holy Spirit and because of all the other qualities that the Holy Spirit brings to the message of love and kindness and patience and knowledge and purity. And for that reason, the Word goes out and does not return void, but accomplishes the purpose that the Lord has ordained for it. Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. You know, when you are talking to someone about the gospel who's not a Christian or who's outside this church, there's power 
Because of the Holy Spirit in you, there's power in your words. So you should be not hesitant to talk about the gospel, the good news. How do you do that? Talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, why he did it. There's power. And he says he's commending himself as well, the ninth reason, with weapons of righteousness. Weapons of righteousness. It doesn't seem to make sense that he would commend himself with weapons of righteousness. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, the power of God. And then he says, with weapons of righteousness. So is Paul saying he's really, he's really a good person? He's done really well? When he was there, he was always righteous before them? That's not what he's saying at all. The righteousness he's talking about is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Christ is the best weapon any of us could ever have. Especially when you feel attacked, when you feel put down or put upon, as Paul did in this time. He describes in Ephesians 6, righteousness as a breastplate. It's protecting the core of his body, Christ's righteousness. And certainly, if you understand the righteousness of Christ, you can say like Paul, who is there to condemn? As he said in Romans 8, there's nothing that can separate me from the love of God because of Jesus, because of his righteousness. So his weapons of righteousness, how, are they, how is Christ's righteousness a weapon? Well, it's a weapon in that it has power, power of the Holy Spirit to speak of Christ in his righteousness with yourself clothed in righteousness. First of all, none of the attacks of the enemy are going to really phase you in the long run. But in the, in the short run even, you'll be able to be effective as a minister, as an ambassador for God. And I like this particular phrase. He says, weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. So he's being very aggressive here with this language. Usually you, you think of a shield in one hand. This was typical Roman, typical shield, in, or the, the shield in the left and the sword in the right. This is how they would fight. But Paul doesn't mention a shield here. He says he's got a weapon of righteousness in the right hand and the left. This is more like some kind of ninja warrior. He's got swords in both hands. So aggressive is he feeling with the righteousness of Christ. Two offensive weapons in his hands. And this is a church that's persecuted Paul. And he's saying, all of Christ's righteousness is my weapon. God is for us. Who can be against us? So to keep the ministry from being discredited, the ministers must pursue pure living and godliness and holiness. The same is true of every Christian. If you want to be a Christian, a true Christian, you need to live a pure life before the world. Your witness in the world. Your witness in the world is really based upon what people are seeing in your life and hearing out of your words, unless you actually have an opportunity to talk to them. You may have seen uh, some of these stories. It's, I think, been on 60 Minutes, if you remember long ago. But over the past 30 or 40 years, there's, there's been this, this growing movement of people who have never served in the military to put on a uniform 
and put on a bunch of medals and go to veterans events <coughs> pretending, pretending to have served in some war and gotten lots of awards. So this is a, it's a, it's a tricky thing because military guys know all the medals. So they show up at these events and very quickly they're getting called out. Oh, where did you serve? Oh, I served here. Oh, I've served there too. Who is your instructor? And you can see how it unravels really fast because they don't know all the answers. These people, they say, are uh, using stolen valor. They're robbing um, the honor of service by pretending to be something that they're not. And actually, if you get on YouTube and look these up, the vets actually get really mad at these people. So some of them, you're lucky if they don't get beat up or something. Um, But they're pretending to be something they're not. So as Christians, we also act that way if we don't really live the life that we claim to have, the life that we claim to have in in our souls because of Christ. Finally, he says it's, he's commending himself in every way, verse 8, through honor and dishonor. In other words, he explains that in every single circumstance, he, he holds fast to Christ with endurance and humility. Uh, the lust of the eyes, the easy way out, he rejects that. The lust of the flesh, the pursuit of pleasure, he checks that. He, uh, he embraces the hardship. He tries to live a pure life. And now he rejects the pride of life, the desiring of honor and praise of men. He rejects it all. So long as he can be true to Christ through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well-known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor and yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Sounds like a very difficult calling. Indeed, Paul has experienced all of those things that he mentioned. And yet Jesus warned us that this would come. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, he said. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking of people like Paul. Jesus also said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, this kind of persecution is coming not only to ministers, but it's coming to all of you. In so much as you live for Christ, you will be persecuted in some way. If you're not persecuted, you need to ask yourself why. Why? Paul was always the same, regardless of his circumstances. He lived a transparent life, unaffected by any situation. You remember if he was in jail, what did he do? When he was in jail with Silas, he praised God and he preached the gospel and people were saved. When he was standing before kings, what did he do? He preached the gospel and asked that king to come to Christ. It didn't matter where he was. He lived in humility and service to God in all circumstances. If you're reading uh, the articles in this month's Table Talk, you know Jay Gresham Mason, he actually also felt this way. He was rejected. He was a wonderful theologian and pastor. He was rejected and excommunicated by his denomination. 
because he was holding true to God's word. And I'm not, um, I'm not exaggerating when I say that that was the reason. Because he held true to God's word, he was excommunicated. He was, he was treated as an imposter, yet was the only one who was true. He was treated as unknown, and yet he was well known. This will come to all of us at some time. And yet by Christ's Spirit, we know that in all things, it's going to work together for our good. It's all going to work together to honor and praise and truth, to be known by God and rejoicing and possessing everything. In these ways, by faithful endurance, Paul commends himself to the church. So let's conclude by going back to verses 1 and 2. He says, Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So let's quickly address what that means. What does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? Paul isn't saying that um, you receive saving grace and then you become unsaved, so you receive it in vain. Uh, He's using the grace of God in this particular passage more in the sense of favor. You've received the grace of God. You've heard the gospel. You've received the favor of God. In hearing the gospel, don't receive it in vain. We know this is actually the way we should look at this particular verse because of the very next verse. He tells them to believe the gospel. To believe it. Don't just hear it and then ignore it. That's to receive it in vain. Receive it. Receive the grace of God. In a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You see, God had made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the day of your salvation. Plant your flag on Christ. Stand upon the rock of Christ. Because if you are standing on Christ in His shed blood, if this is... In the final analysis, what you live for, then you will be as courageous and you'll patiently endure everything that Paul did and more because Christ in His Spirit is with you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your mercy to us, for Your grace. We thank You for Jesus Christ, His shed blood, His sacrifice, for His resurrection from the dead. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit who lives in us, who regenerates our hearts, who changes and convicts us. We pray that there would be no one in this room who would not leave without knowing Jesus and loving Jesus. We pray for those who are suffering, as Paul did in some ways, suffering affliction or hardship, difficulty, feeling great anxiety. Lord, we pray that you would touch needs, that you would meet people where they are, But more than that, that you would be glorified. That as we glorify you, as we set our eyes on Jesus Christ, that you would touch everyone's heart. You would give us the strength we need so that by great endurance, we would be able to live this life for your glory and courage and integrity and purity of life. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.